Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. All right, let's get started. Uh, welcome to Living in the Matrix, everybody. I'm Jonathan. I'm here with Rich. Say hi, Rich. Hey, everybody. Great to be back. Awesome. Uh, today, we have uh, a fascinating guest. Uh, his name is Jason Coker. Do I get that right? Is it Coker? Yeah, yeah good job. Cool. Uh, Jason is the co-lead minister with his wife at Oceanside Sanctuaries, formerly First Christian Church of Oceanside. Jason earned his MA at Fuller and is currently a PhD student uh, conducting research at the intersection of intercultural theology Religious disaffiliation and moral psychology. I can't wait to unpack that with you. Uh, he's <laughs> he's building uh, community organizing efforts in San Diego and coaches leadership and other pastors. Welcome, Jason. So, well, glad to have you. Uh, that guy sounds awesome. Who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> That's why we invited you on. Is there anything more awkward, like in the world, than being asked to write a bio? about yourself like like it's from your you know how, like well you know I like mean, there's just like i don't know half a dozen things that i in, have been involved in, in here or there and there, there's always like that dreaded hey can you send me a bio and i'm always like oh seriously do i have to send a bio anyway so but let's, start, let's start with what really i think is your heart is you being a pastor that's kind of where you've centered on um it's your full-time job Tell me about your church, because we'll start there, because I think that's you are an affirming church, which is that's outside the status quo. And I think it's becoming status quo slowly. Tell me about your church first, and then we'll dive a little bit into that. OK, yeah, sure. So I, I do. I do a pastor of church, uh, uh, actually the co-lead ministers, as you mentioned, is my official title. So my wife and I, Janelle and I, co-lead that church together. That's actually a relatively new development. Um, she came on as my co-lead minister a year, almost a year and a half ago. Um, and that was a reflection of uh, the church growing to the point where, you know, it could afford to bring uh, a, a co-lead minister on staff. And then I was entering into the PhD program at the time. So I needed somebody to help sort of shoulder that bandwidth. But then also the other reality was, you know, and so you guys know this, you've been around churches for a long time. You, uh, your history is evangelical like mine. So I'm sure this will sound familiar, but you know, we were just like working two full-time jobs and only getting paid for like one part-time job for many, many years. And so by the time the church grew enough to sustain uh, both of us, it was sort of a recognition that she'd been an unpaid staff member for years at that point. And so it was sort of partly about making it right. Um, and then also a reflection of our value for more egalitarian staff, uh, which is why instead of her becoming like an associate pastor, we, we shared the, the job. Um, so that's relatively new to us. Uh, and we've been kind of working out the kinks of like leading together um, as a married couple. There's some weirdness there, um, but, but, but we're good partners. We've been married a long time. And so we, we have been figuring that out. The church itself is actually um, part of a mainline denomination called the Disciples of Christ, which is uh, uh, one of the kind of like seven main, quote unquote, liberal mainline denominations. 
So part of my story is uh, sw- switching teams, so to speak, leaving evangelicalism in 2010. And then uh, after a, a bit of a journey, uh, getting back into ministry and finding a denomination that I felt like I could fit in and found the disciples. And it just so happened that there was a church in my hometown that was part of the denomination, not my hometown, but the town I was living in at the time. That was part of my denomination or that denomination and they needed a pastor. So it's kind of a weird confluence of things that all came together. And at that point I was like, well, maybe there is a God. Maybe this is what I'm supposed to do, you know? So, uh, so I ended up there. That was eight years ago. And, uh, really what that doing at that project, sorry, what were you doing at that time before I became the pastor there? Uh, I was teaching at the local university and, um, and also ha- had been a fundraising executive for a sort of semi-large local nonprofit. So when I left the ministry and left evangelicalism in 2010, I went to work for the nonprofit world and we did that for about five years um, before getting back into ministry. So that's a tough space. I, I worked in that industry. <laughs> It is. I worked for a uh, homeless agency that had five locations in the United States. We were fairly, we were $10 million. So my nut was 10 million every year. I was the director of development. It's a tough space because it's the, it's the hard part about ministry in general is that there needs to be funds, you know, and you struggled with that entire question the entire time. Sounds like in your journey, what has that been like? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just the funding side of it in general? Yeah, just so part of ministry is this idea, Jesus said, love your neighbor. And so it's doing things out of love, but functionally it's tough to create ministry without money, mm-hmm. you know? And so how have you guys navigated that? Because I think uh, you, you as part of your bio, your church imploded and then you rebuilt it and then got to mm-hmm. the point where, you and your wife could be the pastors. What has yeah. that journey been like? Yeah. I mean, our, our church, when we first started there was kind of a classic mainline uh, congregational story. It had peaked in the sixties and then went through a period of about 40 years of just very steady decline. By the time when we got there in 2015, it was about 40 members, most of them over the age of 75. Uh, they, were, they were out of money. The only reason they were still operating is because a member had died and left left them you know, a chunk of money. It wasn't that much, but it was enough to keep the lights on. And so um, that was kind of the state of things when I got there. How we handled that, honestly, is because I'd spent five years working in the nonprofit world, four mm-hmm. of that as a director of development for an agency with about a $10 million budget, it's very similar to Jonathan. Um, I really, in that four or five year period of time, really learned a lot uh, about having a different kind of posture towards money in a nonprofit organization, became a lot less idealistic and a lot more pragmatic. um, And also just really began to, I think, see, because I worked in a nonprofit as opposed to like a church, I really became uh, aware of just sort of like what best practice in a good nonprofit is and realized like, well, we didn't do any of this in the churches that I was on staff with. You know, we weren't transparent about our money. Um, We acted like we were entitled to people's money. Uh, We, you know, we, we weren't asking questions like, 
kind of impact are we having with the money that we bring in? And then how are we demonstrating that impact, not just to our, our members, but like to the surrounding community? How are we how are we showing that the money that you give to this organization produces a good outcome? These are the kind these are bread and butter questions for a nonprofit. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. If you can't do all that, if you can't demonstrate that the money you're bringing in is making a genuine positive impact on the most critical issues in your community and be transparent about it at the same time, then you're not going to be able to compete in a charitable space. Um, yeah. Unless you're like one of those nonprofits that's just fleecing people. And there are lots of those for sure. Right. Unfortunately. Um, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, exactly. So I think like by the time I got back into ministry, I realized well, if I'm ever a pastor again, if I'm ever doing that again, I'm going to treat our church like it's a nonprofit. Um, and that's what we've done. So we we really emphasize uh, making a material impact on the community around us. We tell people, you don't have to give us money. God doesn't require you to give us money. God certainly doesn't require you to give 10% of your money. Um, and so give us money if if you believe in what we do, if you trust us to spend it well. Um, and, uh, and if we have, you know, demonstrated that, that we are making good decisions with your money, if you don't believe those things, you shouldn't be giving us anything. Um, so we kind of flipped the script on that. Uh, the way that, I, I mean, our budget has increased by nearly 50 to 80% every year in the past eight years. So I'd say people have responded really well. Um, you know, when I first got there in 2015, our budget was Mm $89,000. Um, our budget this year is $434,000. So, um, it's, I think it's worked quite well. Now it's worked partly because we're also the kind of church that exhibits in very progressive spaces. And so those messages and, and, and that, those ethics around money appeal to people who are in more sort of liberal or progressive head spaces and in more liberal or progressive community spaces. If my church was full of like very traditional, conventional, uh, uh, right leaning Christians, it wouldn't work at all. You know, I, I just tell them, God wants you to give your 10%. And if you do, then you're going to get lots of money back. Uh, and that's what would work. Right. Like, so, you know, it, it fit with like that flipping the script fit with the overall posture and tenor of the kind of church that I wanted us to be anyway, if that makes sense, you know, we're reaching people or we're trying to create a safe space. I should say for people who no longer trust religion and no longer trust church. So it was important to, to reverse the way that we were talking about things like money. Money is not the only issue, but money is one of those issues where churches have demonstrated that they can do a lot of harm. And that, and it's the reason why a lot of people have left. So we had to talk about money very differently. Well, we don't even have to start talking about Adam or the LGBT side of things or creation or like young earth um, to do that. But speaking of kind of potential reasons people leave the church or kind of have their moment, go back to 2010. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. If you went through a cathartic moment or you had some kind of deconstruction, tell me about what was going on in your headspace as you left that evangelical, traditional evangelical community. Yeah, Janelle and I spent about 15 years in like charismatic evangelicalism. My first ordination is in the vineyard community of churches, if you're familiar with that. Um, oh, yeah. One of, the, one of the vineyards that we were in for about 12 years 
leaned really heavily Pentecostal. So, so we were really steeped in a very Pentecostal environment for a lot of years. And, um, you know, starting around the early 2000s, I just really began to grow disillusioned with the things I was seeing in those spaces, things that look like abuse of power and uh, manipulation around all kinds of things, including money, um, but but also just the way that people's lives were, I think, really uh, being controlled in ways that were harmful. And so I began to really sort of take those things apart. I, I, and honestly, like probably around that time was when uh, like late 90s, early 2000s, probably the thing that catalyzed like a long, slow deconstruction process for me, because it started way before 2010, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. I was at a Promise Keepers event in like the late nineties, right? You guys were old enough. You guys have probably been to Promise. I never Keepers, went to one. Right? I, I I couldn't stand it. Even being 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 fully into the church four days a week, I I just never got involved. I never that that was never oh. my cup of tea. Yeah, sorry. Um, that's good. That's good. That's just one less wound that you have to bandage. So, <laughs> um, so I went to a Promise Keepers event in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, this is like this is like. This is like, it was a great, it was a great venue. This is a catalyzing moment, right? So we show up at the Promise Keepers and in front of the Promise Keepers is a crowd of men dressed in like uh, camouflage, like in military fatigues, right? And they're walking in a circle and they've got signs, you know, they're protesting the Promise Keepers event. So me being who I am, like I make a beeline for those dudes because I want to talk to them, right? Like I want to find out what they're about. I want to like engage, right? Well, it turns out these guys are hardcore strict Calvinists, Rich. And they are really like, they're, they're livid about promise keepers because there are people of different races worshiping inside together. And among a variety of like a litany of other, you know, problems that they had with promise keepers, that was one of the big ones, right? Like whites and blacks worshiping together, you know, it's the sign of the apocalypse. And so I just got into like a debate with these guys, you know, like the head guy swear, I, I kid you not had a Hitler mustache. Right. Like you can't make this up. Like he and I were like in this debate and he's quoting scripture to me and I'm like arguing back and like I can be a really, really annoying like debater. So uh, I was just pushing his buttons. Right. And at one point he got so angry with me. This guy's probably in his 40s. Right. And I'm in my 20s. He got so angry with me, looked at me and he said, I know what you want. What you want is for me to punch you right in the face. (laughs) And I said, I said, I swear, man, I do not want you to be in my face. Like, I'm just trying to have a conversation. But he was so angry, like, and to the point of being ready to do violence, right? So anyway, I, I disengage with him. I go inside. We go into the Promise Keepers event. We sing to Jesus. You know, uh, people come out and they give an altar call to, you know, 15,000 people who are already Christians. I still don't know what that was about. Um, but uh, we went inside. And then we, yeah, then we had a lunch break. So check this out on the lunch break, they sent us out to the practice field where they had like, you know, mountains of like pre-box lunches and you grab the lunch, you sit on the grass, you eat your lunch. I'm sitting there eating my lunch with like 15,000 other guys. And I look over to the right and there's a chain link fence. And on the other side of the chain link fence is a public park. And there's a wedding going on in the public park. And there's a bunch of people from the promise keepers at the fence talking to people on the other side of the chain link fence. So of course I'm like, I got to go find out what's going on over there. So I go over there. Well, it turns out it's a gay wedding happening at the park next door to Promise Keepers, right? And so there's a bunch of guests from the gay wedding arguing 
with the Christian men on the other side of the, the fence, right? So I go up and I sort of insert myself into one of these debates. And the guy who was arguing with the wedding guest on the other side of the gate, he gets tired, frustrated, he leaves, right? So I pick up the conversation with this woman named Max. And I wouldn't have had language for this at the time, but I'd say Max was non-binary or perhaps lesbian. Uh, and uh, Max was a delightful human being. We had an amazing conversation. Mm-hmm. We talked about philosophy and theology. We talked about sexuality. We talked about all kinds of amazing things, right? And at some point, I said, well, listen, you know, uh, what you really need for your life to be fulfilled is Jesus. And she said, oh, I know Jesus. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I love Jesus. And that, like, I had no categories for that. Yeah. Right. I, I was... I was undone. I was blown away. And it occurred to me that the men outside of Promise Keepers who were protesting a Christian event because it was interracial uh, represented a particular kind of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that this, this woman, Max, in this event on the other side of this fence represented another kind of Christianity. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Incredible. Like, I, who would I rather be at a party with, right? Like, yeah. Um, Max really represented who I Spirit. thought yeah. Christ really was. Yeah. Uh, and so I just couldn't, I just couldn't argue with that. And I left and like from that point on, like my faith just began to sort of unravel. Um, and then, you know, kind of the deconstruction, the classic sort of deconstruction event happened for me when uh, a church plant that I was leading here in Oceanside from 2008 to 2010 that was doing pretty well. We had like a little house church, uh, but you know, uh, it kind of, it imploded because the great recession hit. We lost 60% of our missionary funds, you know, and, uh, and we couldn't like pay our rent. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, I was like at the end of a, a long period of having leveraged everything in my life to plant a church for an evangelical denomination that had a set of values and doctrinal beliefs, most of which I really didn't agree with anymore. And who were just utilizing me to like expand their empire (laughs) and were giving me no support, no assistance. And when we went like bankrupt and lost everything, they just dropped us. They weren't there for us. And so that was sort of like the catalyzing moment for me to say, not only am I, should I not be like leading a church right now, but I'm not sure that I'm still a Christian. Uh, and, and so we just stepped away from the whole thing and then stepping away from Christianity and stepping away from pastoral ministry, having a regular job, you know, nonprofit job, all of that, like just opened up the floodgates and gave us the freedom that I think we needed to be intellectually honest with ourselves uh, to rethink things, you know, when your, your livelihood is no longer attached to, you know, the, the message, then you're free to question it. Um, and so, you know, we, we went through a fairly long five-year process of like rethinking all of our commitments, uh, to faith and to our vocation. And at the end of that, this is not everybody's story and doesn't, doesn't, it shouldn't be everybody's story, but you know, at the end of that, really decided that I was still called the ministry, but I needed to find a different context where I could be authentic and live out my moral convictions. You know, like for me, the question was, can I still be Christian and be moral? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And uh, the answer was yes. You know, I just needed to find a, a group of people that would allow me to do that in in my way. Jason, let me ask you a question because you brought up a really interesting point from the perspective of someone who's inside. You called it empire, specifically in context with sort of the Christian organization and almost like that monolith that has this. Because I remember that, you know, it's like it's this idea that your job is to get people into heaven. Like it's the empire is about transition of people into heaven. And in spirit, it's a great idea, but in practice, it becomes this, you know, you don't really matter if you're, if the kingdom isn't using you kind of thing. Did you feel that when you were working through that? Is it like, that must've been pretty rough for them to just say, sorry, good luck. You know, how did that feel at the time? Oh yeah, no, it was, uh, it was, it was heartbreaking. Um, It was heartbreaking to come to terms with the realization that, uh, that people that I thought genuinely cared about me, about my wife and I, about our family, um, really didn't, that we were only, we, they, their commitment to us ended with our utility to, to the organization. Um, and, you know, I can understand like, you know, uh, people leave our church, you know, they decide like we're not their cup of tea, even if they've been there for a few years or, or they change their, their, their faith or their beliefs or whatever. And they leave and, um, you know, we're still like connected. We're still friends, but like, we don't spend a bunch of time together. Uh, so I understand like just proximity, uh, sort of ordering our relationships, but like I had, you know, I had a church planting coach, uh, and a church that was sent to us, you know, ascending church, uh, and a regional overseer, people that I had contact with, weekly, like on a weekly basis that I spent time with. And after we said, Hey, we're going to shut this thing down because we're out of money, not because we're out of people, but because we're out of money. Um, and I don't know if we're going to be able to pay rent next month. Um, one person returned my call and he was like genuinely sympathetic. Um, but like everybody else, like didn't even return my calls or my emails. Like as soon as, as soon as they were done with us, they were done with us. Um, and that, and that was, uh, that was, that, yeah, that was really hard along with like losing my vocation, my sense of calling, something I'd poured myself into for 15 years. Yeah. I had just graduated with my seminary degree. Like, I was like, why did I do that? Like, that was a terrible mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it was, it was tough. Wow. Um, you use the term overseer. It's like, oh my God, I'm going back to my theology, Episcopos, when we were talking about headship and like church polity and stuff. My God, yeah. you just brought me back about like 15 years. But one of the things I wanted to go back to is, <clears throat> you know, the irony of those guys that were um, arguing out front of the promise keepers about interracial faith is like, my God, if they didn't rely on Augustine of Hippo as one of their <laughs> bedrocks who, uh, by all definitions, if he wasn't black, he was pretty dark um, from Northern Africa, right? I mean, it's almost, I think I've even seen iconography of him looking pretty dark there. Um, do you think if they had realized that or if Augustine had walked up to them, um, what you, you you saw Revelation when you, when you chatted with Max, you, you your eyes were open. You said, oh my gosh, this is a, a lovely living representation of the body of Christ. And um totally blown away. What do you think is the biggest impediment for people 
reconciling and coming to this idea that we're all in the image of God, that in the end, God wants us to be with the fullness of him, right? They, he wants us to live in the fullness and richness of his or her blessing, right? Obviously, you talked about the spirit hovering over um, a few um, sermons ago. And of course, the, the word in Hebrew is a feminine word. I don't know if it's, I know the <laughs> ruach is, is, the, is the Hebrew word for like spirit, but at least in the term of the hovering over the waters, that's a feminine, that's a feminine word. And it's amazing, right? So we have to realize that. So what is, is missing in, in terms of what people need to, to, um, to bring people together? And to understand that we're all yeah, all, you mean specifically over like bringing people together across differences, yeah. or yeah, or like would, would would those people have been so fired up and pissed off that had Augustine showed up in their midst and he's black, um, they they would have fallen down and go, oh my gosh, what an idiot I am! Is it ignorance? Is it some? Is it a spirit of some something else? What I mean, we're, we've got a lot of problems right now, right, with the Hamas and and and, and Israeli conflict, right? And we brought this up at our last. With our last podcast, I mean, what <laughs> as a pastor? I mean, as a, yeah, as a, I mean, if you, yeah, yeah, if you believe, if you believe the social science, then you know what what underlies authoritarianism, which is what we're talking about, right? When when we're talking, I think when we're talking about people who uh, in, who read and interpret scripture in a rigid way, and then want to apply. Uh, different readings of scripture to others, other people's lives in a rigid way. We're talking about authoritarianism. Um, if you believe the social science that underlies authoritarianism, then what drives that is fear. Um, authoritarians are deeply fearful. Authoritarian followers are deeply fearful people and authoritarian leaders are deeply fearful people. Uh, and the fears that drive the the desire to be in control and to control others and or to be controlled, like to have the sense of security and safety that comes from having really clear boundaries, really rigid concepts that you can live within, and the the notion that somebody else is like watching over all of that to make keep you safe. Um, that's the desire to be controlled. Uh, so what underlies the primary fear that underlies that is is fear of people who are different than you. It's xenophobia. Mm -hmm. um, now that gets like fleshed out in a million different ways. It's fear of people who are a different cult color than you or a different culture than you, or who have a different sexual orientation than you or different gender than you, different religion than you. But, but ultimately it's just fear of difference. Um, and I, and I like the, the, the main researcher that I've read who's done work in this is Robert Altemeyer. He's a Canadian researcher. He's retired now. He's sort of literally written a book on authoritarianism. And his point is that the, like the Venn diagram of authoritarianism and religion, uh, excuse me, right, right leaning religion. Uh, the, the Venn diagram of those two things is like practically a circle so much so that social scientists don't know if, xenophobia causes religion or religion causes xenophobia, right? Like they're too tightly connected to like figure out where the causation lies. Um, so it's now not that's not to say that then it's like the same, right? It's like one circle. They're the right. same, right? Yeah. Now that's not to say that left-leaning expressions of religion don't have fear or xenophobia or racism or homophobia or any of those things they do. Like, Oftentimes I say now that I've been like in both worlds, 
what most people don't understand about the liberal mainline is that most liberal mainliners are right of center. The the liberal mainline church is in, is is largely conservative. So uh, the the clergy aren't. Clergy are usually like raging leftists, but the congregants themselves are typically like right of center. They're they're, they're if even if they're Democrats, they're still like relatively conservative Democrats. And so sometimes I tell people. You know, the reason that mainline churches are failing is not because they're liberal. That's the evangelical party line, right? The reason mainline churches are failing is because they're twice as conservative as evangelical churches are. They are uh, theologically and culturally conservative, just like evangelical churches, but they're also like uh, archaic in their style, right? Like their, their worship style makes no sense to anybody who was born, you know, after 1970. So, so they're like twice as conservative. You have a double barrier to, to be engaged in those churches. So, so those churches also have those problems and, uh, and, and what drives that is fear, right? Religion is, religion is an essentially conservative, conservative phenomenon in history. People turn to it in order to protect themselves from change, not in order to embrace and stimulate and bring change. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course, like, you know, fantastic exceptions, like the Black civil rights uh, tradition in in uh, Black Protestant churches in the United States. Um, but by and large, they're, they're full of people who are fearful of change. Mm. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit because this leads into what we're talking to about. You made a conscious choice as part of your church to be both inclusive and affirming. What was the journey to that? Because part of it is you you started with being, you know, in the Promise Keepers group, but you've been drawn towards that community to bring them to the larger. It's not like, hey, let's create a, a gay community. Let's create a all-inclusive community. What has that journey been like? Yeah. Well, I mean, that journey began with that encounter with Max in the late 90s, I think it was 1999 or something, 1998 or 1999. And then by the time I was, I was leaving evangelicalism and leaving uh, ministry, I had decided that I thought that there, that uh, gay sex is not immoral, right? It's like the starkest way that I can put it. Um, It is not inherently sinful to have gay sex at least not more inherently sinful than straight sex. You know, you can do it in a way that's harmful. Um, but just you know, all, all other things being other, all other things being equal, it's just sex. Right. So I'd come to that conviction before I left ministry and I decided that like maybe my denomination would move in that direction because it had moved in a more liberal direction around women's leadership. Um, but by the time I quit, it was clear to me that they were sort of doubling down on their homophobia um, and that was one of the reasons why I walked away because I thought, oh, well, this isn't going in the direction I hoped it would. And I can't in good conscience be a part of a, a denomination anymore that is homophobic. That just became a very strong conviction of mine. And so when I went back to ministry and went looking for a new denomination to be a part of, that was one of the criteria. I needed to be a part of a denomination that was uh, gay affirming or queer affirming. And so I found that in the Disciples of Christ. And then what that allowed me to do when I found a church in the Disciples that I uh, was called to be the pastor of, it, it gave me a context in which I could do that. 
Um, and, uh, we, it, it just is, the short answer is it's my very strong moral conviction. Uh, and so there's no way that I was ever going to lead a church again that didn't, didn't share that conviction. Now, the church that I became the pastor of, as I've already mentioned, was like at death's door. And so there was a long process of transformation involved, engaged there. And so we went from being like sort of affirming because we're a part of an affirming denomination, but being quiet about it because that's what it was like when I got there. We went from that to being like, you know, very uh, open and loud and celebratory uh, of the gay community. And that process took about four years before we got to the place where the church had changed enough. Yeah, what was the dialogue internally between not just you and the staff, but with the community? Were they receptive to the idea? And like, what kind of led that charge? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole other podcast episode potentially, but uh, that that church went through, like you guys probably have experienced oh, no, I'm sorry. this I'm in other settings. You're in now. Yeah, right. Okay. So that church went through a really significant shift in culture and change. And that was a that was that was a contentious shift, mm. um, and so the last thing we were talking about was gay people. Um, they they wanted to fight about a bunch of other things, uh, and by the time we got through those contentions, that are really like it's a cliche that organizations experiencing change go through these like seismic, uh, you know, battles. Um, by the time we got to the other side of those battles, the congregation was totally different and the culture was totally different. And so, you know, one day it was just like, well, we like, we're, we're queer affirming. Right. And I was like, yep. And everybody was like, great, let's hang a rainbow flag. Like we should be doing more. Like, so, so we, we really didn't change around that issue. We changed around other issues and by the time those issues got resolved, like we just had a totally different church. That's awesome. I, yeah. What was, uh, where was your wife in all of this? Was she on board fully? <laughs> she was, she was not excited about me going back into ministry at first. Um, you know, we, we'd spent a few years like carving out a different path. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point, I went back to her and said, Hey, I feel like it's time for me to go back. I miss it. And she was like, um, I don't know. <laughs> you know? And uh, I said, listen, I understand. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I don't know. So she, she was much more cautious about it than I was. Um, and she definitely followed me into that space. And then of course, when we, when we showed up at that church, she could see the dysfunction, like the, the power dynamics there. I mean, we both could see it. Um, but I, I had grace for it and felt like I had the, like, I had a sense of like, I can see how this could change and I can see what needs to be done. And she was like, I don't want to have anything to do with, with that mess. Mm-hmm. Um, so she came and showed up and volunteered and was a part of it for the per- first two years. But it wasn't until after the, the lion's share of the conflict had been resolved and ironed out. And frankly, you know, a core group of people who were just extraordinarily dysfunctional left. Um, and after they left, she was like, okay, I could get involved here. And then, then she, 
she she could see that it was it was going to be okay and then at that point she really started to jump in in terms of ministry and was you know neck deep in it you know not long after that so that's awesome um I want to go back to something you said earlier of coming from a Pentecostal background. When you kind of stepped out of the vineyard, did you sort of leave the spirit element behind? What happened to that part? Because that's sort of the one of the defining qualities of vineyard is being Pentecostal. Did you leave that behind? Uh-huh. Yeah. I did. Was that tough? It's it's and it's yeah, it's, it's, it's still attention. Um, do you, you know, still, and it's still attention. Be- gifts of the tongues. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I can, I can do that. Well, but sometimes, you, sometimes I'm listening, learning or asking is, did you sort of leave that spirit filled part that's actively practiced as part of your own faith? Cause I think that's one of the, it, it's one of the more beautiful parts when it's done right in a community. Yeah. 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 I'll be the first to admit that I have not figured out how to do that. Right. So, um, I, I think that I, I, two things maybe happened with me. Uh, one is, one is I felt and to a certain extent still do feel complicit in things that I think were harmful to people, um, in the ways that we prayed for people and the ways that we sort of led people along and manipulated them emotionally. Um, and, you know, I, I found that I'm really good at that. Like I'm really, really good at like reading people's mail and intuitively picking up on what's going on in their lives and speaking into that mm-hmm. in a way that moves yeah. them in a certain direction. Um, I can still do it. Like, it is, it is not a hard thing to do. And that really, I think, scares me because, I, like I said, I feel complicit in what I think were probably harmful practices for, for a lot of people. Now, for lots of people, it wasn't harmful. Like, and this is what makes it complicated is You're looking back on those times. Yeah. Yeah. In my experience, some of that was very good for people. They experienced things that were – they experienced good outcomes. But but that is one complication is I feel complicit in in some practices that I think were were not healthy. Um, so I I don't pick it back up again, even though I could. Um, there's a whole funny story about that related to being back at Fuller because there are people at Fuller who do that and they want to do it every time we have any kind of a meeting and it makes me crazy. Um, and part of the reason it makes me crazy is because I can just jump right back in and do it. It's not hard. It, um, it's is called that, cold reading, right? Yeah. Is that a matter? I mean, because one of the things about being a Calvinist, of course, um, is that I looked at this. I mean, I was I was never a cessationist, um, and that's probably a good thing. And um, I certainly believe one of the ways you can get more involved in this stuff is to is to have that heart centeredness. Is to is to lead with your heart, right? And we had prayer sessions at my church up in Rockland where we we're going for like. 24 hours. Right. And there's people that needed that and you get caught up and you're praying and it feels really good. Right. And it's kind of like this affirmation and you're going through the motion, but I always looked at the idea of people going la, 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 la. Right. And I go to Glossea. Right. And I go, you know, Pentecost, guess what, boys and girls, they were all understanding each other's languages. They were actually from different countries and they were actually speaking real languages, but they understood it. And it's called Glossea. 
and I always that's the that's the that's the hill I would die on, right? And not like this lurching in the church floor and the Bethel kind of movement. But that being said, you know, now that I'm here and I'm open to so much new stuff, I, I guess I really want to understand is where does it so um, where is it so unity and real strength and and and, and kind and, and a power moving forward versus where does it so discord and like the haves and the have nots like i read this book by frank peretti a long time ago right this present darkness and the protagonist's wife was always so sad because she couldn't speak in tongues and she was just cast aside you know you suck right and that's just a terrible thing too right so help me understand that kind of dynamic and and where it might you think have some value still today and in the circles that we interact with you know was that a lot? I'm yeah, sorry. so absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In Pentecostal, yeah. In Pentecostal settings, those those external phenomena are used to create a class structure and a power structure that is extraordinarily harmful. Um, so for oh, yeah. that reason, oh, 100%. I did not like, and this that. is a phenomenon. Oh, it's a, it's a huge problem. This is, it, it, this is a huge problem, especially in the global South, because, because global Pentecostalism is the at this point uh, close to the largest expression of Christianity on the planet. Um, now, Global South Christianity is by far the largest expression of Christianity on the planet, but a healthy dose of that is Catholic. Um, and of course, there are Catholic, there are, there are plenty of Catholic or even liturgical like Anglican churches in the Global South that are Pentecostal. But the real phenomenon, like the amazing phenomenon is independent, you know, Pentecostalism. And in, in South America and Africa, uh, this is not, this is less of an issue in Asia, but in South America and Africa, they just re- really wrestle with these issues of, um, uh, pow- of unequal or asymmetrical power dynamics that are created by these external phenomena, right? So if you can do that, like if you can, if you can speak in tongues or you can give somebody a word of knowledge or you can d- demonstrate f- the physical, accepted physical manifestations of the Holy spirit, then you are instantly, your status is instantly elevated. Um, you, you gain real power in the community. And then that power is in my experience abused all the time. Um, and you know, and so this is, this is known to be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the complicity I'm, I'm referring to, uh, now is there a space for that in the future? Well, so I'll answer that question by saying this, right? Like as an analytically oriented, white, straight, cisgendered American man, I will say that, you know, one of the obvious problems with Western civilization in general and Western religion in particular is that it is too dualistic, that it has sacrificed embodiment um, uh, at the altar of like cognition. And so and so there's a reason global Pentecostalism is a phenomenon. It's because it satisfies this human need for somatic embodied experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's the old joke that like, this is the other reason liberal mainline churches are failing is because, you know, they're the frozen chosen, right? Like they're, they're intellect on, uh, they're intellect on ice rather than, you know, uh, passion on fire. Uh, and in globally speaking, most people will choose passion on fire any day over intellect on ice. Now that's, that comes with its major pitfalls to your point, Rich. Um, 
But it is also a feature of Western colonialism that we have used dualistic disembodiment as a tool of power and oppression. And so, and, and so there is a, a need to re-embrace that. Now, how do I do that in a church like mine that is, uh, you know, white, liberal, mainline, Protestant, um, and, and for all those reasons, very disembodied? I don't really know. I think at this point, this exact issue is why Richard Rohr is so incredibly popular among white progressives, because Richard Rohr has opened the door uh, for a lot of post-evangelicals to a somatic, embodied expression of spirituality in the contemplative tradition. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think that that contemplative tradition scratches that itch uh, for a lot of folks who may not, they may not be comfortable for cultural reasons showing up at a Pentecostal service where people are jumping up and down, you know, or they're, they're acting in ways that are not acceptable in white culture. Right. Um, and so, and so I think like in our case, like we, we do practice sort of contemplative, uh, um, you know, exercises, because that's our way of trying to embody a kind of somatic spirituality and affective spirituality without succumbing to the, the potential power abuses of being more charismatic. Uh, that's how we've done it. I have no idea where we're going with that. Um, I think this is just one of the great, like unresolved issues in my ministry is dealing with kind of the baggage of, of that part of my, my past. So that's no, full, that's full disclosure. Amazing stuff, Jason. Um, I'm glad you brought up contemplative, um, because, um, Jonathan and I have been exploring quantum entanglement and quantum physics and the unified field, um, now for some time. And in terms of tapping into that, and it's my belief that when you hit that level, you know, with, you know, that war talks about that Merton was able to espouse that Finney, you know, that those contemplative places where you're in pure stillness, that we believe is is pure consciousness, right? That's where you get to a place of of peace, of of, of relaxation. When I, I do TM, transcendental meditation, that's where I actually find that place. And of course, Jonathan and I both believe that when you're on psychedelics, you know, you can um through the help of of, of plant medicine can get can get to there. So um tell me a little bit about that contemplative journey that you're on with your, with your congregants and, and what your, um, some of the, some of the, you know, the findings you've got. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that it's something that it still represents a real minority of what we do. Um, okay. you know, we're trying to balance, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of, we're trying to spin a lot of plates, um, from the perspective of like, okay, well, how do we, how do we create a context that's meaningful for people who uh, have been away from church for years? They disaffiliated um, and they're, they're trying to decide if like they should give Christianity like one more chance. Right. Mm. Uh, or they left a church very recently because they've started to like uh, deconstruct for lack of a better word. Um, and they, they did get like somebody loaned them a Richard Rohr book or, uh, you know, they're, they're starting to, or 
they have a gay cousin or sibling and, you know, they are now wrestling with the implications of that. Um, in those cases, like we don't try to immerse people like in a highly spiritual experience because they're really just evaluating whether or not Christianity has any legitimacy, um, whether or not, you know, whether or not they can be Christian and be moral. Um, and so I think, you know, for us, our space, like the particular niche that we have tapped into for now, not that this is what it will always be, but for now we are leaning much more heavily into like being a space of processing, um, like where people's journeys are and where they maybe are hoping to go. Um, and, and then we do a few other things that reassure them, right? Like one is you know, we try to really center and make very visible members of the queer community, um, both in and outside of our congregation, because that just tells people right away that we're going to be a safe space for them to, to have a different kind of Christianity. Uh, and then I, you know, I try to, or I try to exemplify like a reading of scripture that is very different than the, uh, sort of closed minded, like exegetical approach that they are accustomed to. Um, and so those are like, so in some ways I think we're more of a palate cleanser for people who have disaffiliated. Uh, and, and so we try not to like immerse them in like these, you know, contemplative experiences. Now, having said that, yeah, it's definitely not for the, for the new initiate, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's it's just too soon. Yeah, of course. It's too soon for a lot of them. Right. Now, having said that, like, we've been doing this for, I don't know, like we sort of turned the corner as a church uh, from the old culture to what, like I said earlier, was kind of a new culture, like right before the pandemic. Um, so, so now at this point, I would say, this is one of the things Janelle and I talk about a lot is it feels like we do now increasingly have a congregation of people who are able to go deeper in terms of spiritual practices. So it's why we've started to experiment with that a little bit more. And, you know, the interesting phenomenon that I've noticed is we have, we still have a healthy dose of people who have a bunch of wounds and baggage from the past, but I'm seeing less of them show up and I'm seeing more people who have a progressive posture towards their faith and no baggage from their past. Uh, And so so for them, they're just like looking for a place to immerse themselves. Mm. And so that to me feels like a little bit of a shift. Like we went from being a largely Gen X church, like right before the pandemic um, to now being a largely young millennial or older Gen Z church. And so I think that generational shift is what we're experiencing. Like, oh, these guys, like they, they just don't have the wounds and the baggage that Gen Xers had, right? Like, so, so it's, it's a very different thing. Um, They're much more open-minded even if they came from a conservative church, right? Like, and a lot of them did, they came from a conservative church, but all of that stuff just kind of bounced off of them. And, uh, and they're, they're just looking for a place to to embody their faith. So. It's interesting. You mentioned that that question again in two years, it might be different. No, but that's interesting. That generation you have, you, it does appear. And Jonathan, we've talked about this, especially when we talked about um, having some universalist friends on about um, the Gen X and all of the 
parts of, you know, that massive seeker sensitive movement. You know, you think about the Willow Creeks and the Saddlebacks and the structural things of like, you know, hell and all these things that came with it. And the, the newer folks actually are embracing a more open dynamic, especially with the internet, especially with things on, you know, TikTok and a variety of things. And, and in fact, our atheist friend, Jonathan, talked about kids going to the cult, they're going to, you know, these movements, or they're going, you know, you know, negative, you know, introspection, you know, and, or, or nihilism, right? There's, there's a bunch of different things, right? So, but it's encouraging to hear that you're seeing the, this younger group who are definitely going to be more affirming. They're going to, they've seen everything, right? They've born with a, with electronic device in their hands. They know more about technology than we all do, and they don't have the baggage. That's kind of an exciting thing. Well, uh, yeah, well, I'm super wanna, exciting here. I want to interject here and ask Jason you a question that dovetails on that. Do you, what do you think is strictly from your perspective, having seen this gamut of Gen X to Gen Z, how has Christianity changed over the last, I want to specifically the pandemic, but even longer before that, because you've seen a lot, how do you think it's changed? Which Christianity? I mean, I, I think like this is, the one in the this media. This is one of the issues. The one, the in, one the in the media. Okay. Yeah, so so popular evangelicalism. Yeah. Uh, probably more in the South. Uh, that, SBC. Are you talking about the SBC? Yeah. Are you talking about, you know, mainline I denominations? Or I, I think that's what Gen Z is. Like you said, they don't have the baggage. They don't have that, that, yeah. that we all do. I'm 56. How old are you, Jason? 52. Yeah. yeah so we all come um, from generation but it's like we do carry bagging yeah. for that whole arc yeah. that happened the younger generation yeah. you don't see that well i i mean i i think i can answer this question pretty pretty easily i i think the way that the church the dominant expression of christianity in the united states has changed is that it has tripled down on all of the beliefs and boundaries uh and and harmful language and rhetoric that that has driven people away in droves since the mid nineties. Okay. And, and the, and the evidence of that tripling down is that, you know, the vast majority of those folks voted for Donald Trump twice. And so um, this is a, like, this is a phenomenon that like decolonial thinkers call re-Westernization where, like uh, the the West went through a period of de a uh, post colonialism, a kind of decolonizing critique after the colonial era, starting you know in the early 1960s up through 9/11, and that 9/11 triggered a kind of re-Westernization, uh, especially in the uh, in the United States in the presidencies of of George Bush during his tenure when 9/11 happened. But also during the Obama years, you know, Obama is, was an unapologetic, like liberal humanist who believed in the expansion of democracy around the globe. Um, and so there is this re this reactionary re-westernizing movement uh, that's emanating largely from the United States. And I think Christianity reflects that same reactionary doubling down on right-wing traditional conservatism. And so uh, you see this, I think, include, sorry. That's its roots. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, yeah, that's a, that'd be an interesting conversation too, right? Because in a lot of ways, like a right-wing evangelicalism, it was a, as a relatively young movement in Christianity. Um, but, but still there is this like reactionary movement, right? And this is why, this is why most people are leaving, leaving Christianity. They're leaving Christianity in the United States and prior to that in Europe, because it embodies cultural values and beliefs that just make no sense to them. And I think the church has largely responded by, by doubling and tripling down on those, those same things. Yeah, that's fair. Sorry, my dog is barking, so I'm on mute. <laughs> Hold on a second. No worries. There he goes. Um, by the way, I was looking at your website. Um, if somebody needs to um, borrow uh, Immortal Beloved or The Untethered Soul or they need to borrow uh, Sex God uh, for the upcoming um, you know, book clubs, I'm, I'm, all, I'm, I'm all available. They're almost unopened because um, I'm an Enneagram 7, so I'm a chain reader. So they're perfect in condition. So let, let me know. Be happy to drive down a couple hours to Oceanside and drop them off. That's, that's good to know. I, I, I have nothing whatsoever to do with picking books for the book club, but, but, uh, but if they, if they decide to read those books, I'll let you know. Those are good books. Jason, what's your hope for your community? I want to go back to the all-inclusive part, like to create um, my impression. So this is just my impression is that you almost are trying to create a community that would look like heaven. Is that fair? Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think I would agree. I think I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't. You wouldn't catch me using that language, but but I I think I agree with what you're saying. I think we are trying to create a community that reflects the uh, the, world? the ethical the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the ethical world. teachings of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think like you know, on top of that. Like I, my conviction is that uh, the teachings of Jesus find a cultural home in every time and place by being translated or interpreted into the cultural language and values and mores of that time and place, which means that, you know, uh, every prior expression of Christianity won't work for the present moment. And so we're trying to be a faithful interpretation of the teachings of Jesus and the community that should result from that for our current time and place. Uh, And so, you know, sometimes I tease my like Episcopalian friends that the 16th century is a fun place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Right. Like it's, it's like the perfect embodiment of colonial era American religion, right? But it means nothing whatsoever to somebody who's born in the 21st century, unless like they find a particular like nerdy pleasure from like learning the language and customs and cultural symbols of a prior time. And lots of people do. And that's great. Like I have no problem with that. Um, You know, like if, if uh, you enjoy that sort of thing, wonderful. As long as you're not hurting people, I'm fine with that. Um, but in our case, I'm not trying to go back to some pristine past that frankly never existed. I'm trying to embody a community in the 21st century that interprets those teachings 
through symbols and language and cultural practices and, and cultural morals and ethics that translate in our current time and place. And that means, of course, that, I, that we have no choice but to bless and celebrate queer people um, because it's abundantly clear from our cultural standpoint in the United States that queer sex is good, or at least it can be just as good as straight sex, right? So, so, I ha- so we have no like moral choice uh, other than to bless it and affirm it and celebrate it. Um, so that's what I mean by that, right? Like we're trying to be a kind of future-oriented community of faith that is contextually uh, relevant uh, and contextually applies the teachings of Jesus. So, uh, you know, we happen to be in a hundred-year-old building, which mm. is kind of cool, but in some ways sort of inhibits that, right? Uh, so so it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to try to try to do, for sure. Well, you know, I, I think that the reason why Rob's Bell, Rob Bell's church was called Mars Hill and why if you, if you go to the Oropagus, right, and, and, and you go to Corinthians and Paul, I mean, I think you can insert that in any century over the last 2000 years, right? It's That's the beauty of it, right? He wasn't being synchronistic or synchristic. He was using relevant, you know, you know, poets and, 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 and people and, and, and he knew it was on their minds. And it was that idea of trying to find truth, right? like to an unknown God. And he was speaking to them in their own language. And my God, if, if Corinth wasn't, you know, I mean, it was a verb, right. To Corinthianize, right. So he was in the heart of the kind of stuff that was going on. So that's why I think it's just a, a, it's a great expression. And I, you know, you're going back to, you know, not going back to 16th century, all these structures and buildings and hierarchies, those need to go away. But that spirit of the message is still there. Even the idea of a, of a Peter, who puts foot in mouth, right? Because of that passion he has for, for Jesus, you know, whether building, you know, you know, tabernacles for, you know, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, or like, you know, what he did. We, we love to have Peter because we, we fuck up all the time too. And God knows he was the man who was the rock and he fucked up even seeing after the, you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he had a, he had a vision of the living God and he still does that. It's such a, refreshing thing i mean this is what's so beautiful about the 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 word right so yeah i agree jonathan you're on mute i'm on mute i think that's why we come back to jesus because jesus always brings us back to love every human being discovers in their entire life that they have suck moments Mm. and that's why grace to me has always been so profound is it says okay you're a human being Let's deal with it. Let's find a way to deal with it. And that's what I mean by the kingdom is you're not trying to create an evangelical version of a, of, of a long, far away heaven. That's probably not good language, but a image and space of love here that's present because we live in the present and it includes people who are queer. It includes people who are trans. It includes people who don't look like us. Um, I think that's that's really what attracted me, Jason, is that you, from me to you and why I invited you is because I think your community is trying to create something very not, it's not maybe directive, but it's like this beautiful inclusion that's bigger than, because evangelical Christianity, which is my tribe growing up, we liked to circle the wagons and that barrier was friendly. It was protective. It was safe. And what we realized is that when we would leave on Sunday and Monday, go to work, it was 
that's not the world we live in. So how do we prepare to live yeah. in that world? You yeah. know, you had to cross over. Well, the I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think your point uh, is well taken that that's not the world we live in. Right. So, so uh, the reality is, is that we live in an extraordinarily pluralistic mm -hmm. world, right? You guys are a little and farther north than I am. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you guys are so, you know, Rich is in Los Angeles, Jonathan's in, you said, Silicon Valley. Um, I'm in San Diego at the busiest international border crossing in North America. Oh right. So, yeah. so like, so we live in these incredible, um, you know, uh, contexts of hybridity. Uh, and if we can't love and respect uh, and and cooperate with people who are different than us, um, then then we're going to tear each other apart. Which you could argue that is exactly what's happening, and, and I and I think you could argue that the tearing apart that we see happening in American culture is a consequence of how American religion has tended to, uh, you know, colonize uh, as a kind of hegemonic expression of white supremacy right and so and so now we find ourselves in an increasingly like ethnically and culturally diverse uh country and we don't know how to we don't know how to feel safe and secure around people who are different than us um and so we we are tearing each other apart so our church a hundred percent we want to be the kind of church and to to a small extent are the kind of congregation that can can respect and tolerate across those differences here here's the problem the problem is everybody has this impulse this like tribal impulse to be with people who are the same as them uh, including like left-wing progressives right like uh, you know the very best way to make sure that you are a kind of homogenous community is to define yourself as conservative or progressive or whatever it might be, because eventually you're going to like gather those people. And so one of the problems with being an inclusive church, we talk about that obviously a lot, and it's like plastered all over our communication materials is that that act of being inclusive, that posture of inclusivity excludes people who can't tolerate very inclusive environments, right? Um, and so there's a real tension there. Like I hate, on the one hand, I hate that we don't have very many fairly conservative people in our congregation anymore. On the other hand, I'm not conservative. So it's nice that I don't have to deal with conservative people in my congregation who are upset because of the way that I spoke about God or whatever. Um, and so, so it's really, that tension is really, uh, it's, it's real. And it's difficult to like break that up. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's an impossible project, right? I mean, Christianity is an impossible project, but that doesn't mean it's not worth trying. Well, well what's the good part of it? You've obviously started it and continued it and gotten to a point where you can financially handle it. What's the best part of it? What's the best part of our congregation that inclusive approach. Yeah. I mean, the best part of it is that for the people who believe in that and have, have invested in it, it, it is a genuinely 
a like kind of crazily authentic space. There you go. Um, and, and this is not just, just true for my church. I mean, I have, I have other colleagues who have congregations or other kinds of organizations that are like this, where it's like AA, right? Like anybody can show up at an AA meeting. Um, and you can say whatever you have to say at an AA meeting. Um, and that's always sort of been my ideal for a congregation is that people would be able to show up and say, man, my life is really fucked up this week. <laughs> like, Hey, how are you? Not good. I am not good. Like, I'm not sure if I believe in this anymore. I'm not even sure why I'm here. Um, and here's, so here's how I know that we're moving in the right direction is every Sunday we take communion. It's one of our core values. We just always practice communion because of just what it means symbolically for us as a place of inclusion at the table. And we and practice you open allow communion. Everyone, you allow everyone to take yeah. communion. Of course. Yeah. That's important yeah. for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we practice an open communion. And, and I think actually, not to get into this, but I think there is a good argument for, for having a closed communion. It's just not my, it's not my conviction, right? So... Um, so anyway, we, we practice open community and that's our traditions, our denominations, uh, practice as well. It's one of the reasons why I felt drawn to the denomination. It's not like this is my idea, but, um, anyway, we do that And every, every Sunday communion, unless somebody calls in sick, communion is led by a congregant, not a minister. And that is a little bit more unusual in my denomination. Um, and, uh, it's really common for the congregants who lead communion on a Sunday in our, in our Sunday gatherings to say, you know, I'm not even sure what I believe about Jesus right now at this moment in my life, but I'm really grateful for this practice. Um, and that kind of, those moments are when I'm like, oh, I think this is working. Like, <laughs> like I think this is, you know, maybe something worth being a part of because the fact that nobody feels like they have to get up there and tow the party doctrinal line uh, is just a, a, it's, it's beautiful to me uh, that our congregation will just love people all the more because they're so like just transparent and authentic up there. So I, I really love that. That's a hell of a lot more awesome and open than R.C. Sproul not being able to eat uh, the Lord's Supper at Bethlehem Baptist with John Piper. You know, infant baptism. Was <laughs> yes. He was not able to have communion at Bethlehem Baptist. How how pathetic is that in, in contrast, right? And so um, I, I went to it's, ridic it's, it's ridiculous. I went to Richard Rohr's conference <clears throat> probably about 14 years ago. One of the most profound experiences I've ever had was at that conference where we all went to lunch together. There was about 20 of us and of congregants who were left over. The conference was over and we all ate at the restaurant there. And then at the end, we had a bunch of bre leftover bread that was almost like naan. And someone said, who would like to enjoy communion with me? And all of a sudden, because the whole point of the conference was to bring the four quadrants of Christianity together. So everybody was there, was learned, here's my pocket, don't cross over. And yeah. all of a sudden, it was very silent. We were kind of just making it happen. I'm like, I'm in. And all of a sudden, it got to this one person and she started crying. 
And mm. I said, and we didn't really call it out until after, but she was basically saying, I've never had this permission before. Wow. And there were, I mean, we all were weeping because it was the recognition of God. That's what the kingdom of God really looks like. Is it when we are recognizing each other's humanity and frailty, but also dignity. I mean, it was, it was one of the most dignified moments I've ever had in my life because, and everybody was like, we feel like we're on solid ground here because this is what we wanted mm. to really ultimately look like. You know, was, wild mm-hmm. goose. was that like the wild goose thing and the big tent no, kind of Christianity? About two or three years later, this, it was the, uh, it was the, his emerging church conference. It was in 2010, I believe. Got it. Mm-hmm. It was, a, it was a fabulous conference. It was one Very of cool. it was, a, was Phyllis Tickle there? Was it Phyllis, yeah, Tickle? Phyllis Tickle's? Yeah. He and Phyllis did a conference together. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. man. What a great, what a great yeah. uh, experience that one must've been. Yeah. So Jason, this has been absolutely f- uh, a fantastic interview. Rich, any final questions? No, I mean, I just thrilled. It's been really um, eye-opening and, and encouraging and, and awesome. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe uh, heading down there before too long. Just say hi. <laughs> you know, you, of course, it would be welcome anytime. We, yeah. we, even though you guys are hosts of the Dodgers, we do sometimes allow folks from LA. To I'm not, to a, I'm not a Dodgers fan. I've not. I, I'm a Steelers oh, fan. Pittsburgh Steelers is my only. Is the only team I care about. <laughs> God knows they're on a little right. one right now. So yeah, that's, that's it for me, Jonathan. Awesome. This, is, this has been super fun. I appreciate you guys having me. Jason, thank you. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on. And, and I really, I think one of the things, just in kind of hindsight, the thing that I've enjoyed about this conversation is I think your heart, you're not, like you're really genuine, like you are authentic and I know that your congregation is going to benefit from that because I think that's what everybody is really looking for is that sense of authenticity. You don't have it all figured out, mm-hmm. but you're willing to look, <laughs> you know, and that's, right. that's very true. <laughs> that can be a very safe space for people. So I bless you for doing that because if you can create that more for people, I think more people are going to benefit immensely from that. So thank you for doing that. I hope so. I appreciate that. Any final words for, for, from you, Jason, before we head into the weekend? No, no. I just appreciate the opportunity to chat about some things that I don't always get to talk about. So uh, thanks for the invitation. All right, everybody. This has been Living in the Matrix. Uh, if you haven't uh, commented before, please do. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a guest you'd like to invite on the show, please introduce them to us. Uh, subscribe and comment. Love to get to know our audience. So uh, much love, everyone. Mm-hmm.